To my mind, there are few things as terrifying as being locked up for something I didn't do. Losing your freedom, or life, when you are guilty is a steep price to pay, but losing it when you are innocent is unimaginably unjust. This is the case, however, for far too many people, and one of the most frequent and mysterious reasons that it happens is that people falsely confess to things they didn't do. This may seem totally incomprehensible, but it's true. In the United States, of the first 250 convicted people later proven innocent through DNA evidence, 16%, 40 people, had falsely confessed to the crime during the investigation. There are a few reasons for this, and one of the big ones is the way that interrogations are done in this country. Law enforcement has gotten better and better at using psychological methods that employ deception and manipulation combined with false evidence during investigations, even though many studies have found that such evidence can greatly increase the rate of false confessions. In fact, of the countries around the world with similar judicial systems to our own, the U.S. is the only one that allows false evidence to be used in order to get a confession. This means that an interrogator is allowed to tell a suspect that they have evidence against them, even when that is not the case. This is incredibly coercive and, as we will see, wildly dangerous, both to the suspect and to the investigation itself. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Purdue. episode is about a topic near and dear to me. In fact, I wrote my graduate thesis on the effects of false evidence on false confession rates and designed a protocol to test how different types of false evidence affected those rates. I'm not going to get into that experiment today. It was unfortunately unpublishable because it had to be terminated early after a participant had a panic attack during the interrogation, but suffice it to say that this is a subject I care about a lot and have been wanting to share with you for quite some time. So without further ado, let's get into the research behind false confessions. There's no definitive way to verify a suspect's confession during an interrogation without some external source of evidence. This is a shortcoming that has led to a great many wrongful prosecutions, convictions, and even executions of innocent people. In recent years, advanced technology has paved the way for the exoneration of innocent prisoners using DNA testing. In 1989, Gary Dotson was the first wrongfully convicted inmate to be proven innocent using this method, and in the 20 years since he was cleared, over 360 other people have been exonerated through DNA evidence, 
Many of those convictions were originally based, in part, on false confessions. Let's start with a definition. According to Saul Kasson, who has done a significant amount of research on this subject and who you're going to hear about a lot today, a confession is an admission of guilt followed by a narrative statement of what, how, and why the confessor committed the crime. The pervasive danger of a false confession is huge because of the strength of such a statement on jury's verdicts. As Charles McCormick wrote in 1973, the introduction of a confession makes the other aspects of a trial in court superfluous. This is because most jurors cannot imagine confessing to something they didn't do, and therefore they believe a confession they hear about in court above almost any other evidence. False confessions present an alarming problem to law enforcement because they call into question the reliability of a suspect's statements during the entire interrogation. Unfortunately, numerous studies have shown that the American legal system fails to prevent the wrongful conviction, imprisonment, and execution of countless people whose prosecution was based on false confessions. I could name literally a dozen papers that prove this. Exact rates of false confessions are, understandably, hard to acquire, but many studies have painted an alarming picture. As I said at the top, a review of the first 250 convicted people who were later proven innocent using DNA showed that a full 40 of them, 16%, had falsely confessed to the charged crime during the investigation, and a survey of 631 North American law enforcement officers showed that the investigators themselves estimated that nearly 5% of innocent suspects falsely confess during interrogation. So, although the exact rate of false confessions is unknown, researchers have identified several situations and conditions that increase their likelihood. According to Casson and his research partner Lawrence Reitzman, there are three distinct types of false confessions. Voluntary, coerced internalized, and coerced compliant, and each occurs under a different set of circumstances. Voluntary false confessions are those in which innocent people claim responsibility for a crime without any pressure from law enforcement. These confessions are usually made because the suspect has feelings of guilt or delusions or a need for attention or they want some tangible gain like fame or fortune or they want to protect a loved one. This type of false confession is most likely to occur during high-profile investigations and it's usually revealed to be false pretty quickly because the confessor can't actually prove that they have any knowledge of the case or give any corroborating information. This is what happened, for example, in the JonBenet Ramsey case when John Mark Carr confessed to her murder, only for police to discover very quickly that his DNA didn't match the sample found in her underwear. This kind of confession happens all the time when the case is massively famous. Coerced internalized confessions, on the other hand, are those in which the innocent suspect comes to believe that they are, in fact, guilty. People who make these confessions often have some degree of vulnerability, like a lower age or cognitive maturity, or high susceptibility to suggestion. 
and they are swayed by some evidence that they believe overrides their own certainty of their innocence. In other words, they doubt their own minds and their own memories, and they actually come to believe that whatever the interrogator is suggesting about their guilt is more true than what they themselves remember. Lastly, coerced compliant confessions, which were the focus of my thesis study, are those in which an innocent person takes responsibility for a crime in order to avoid legal or physical punishment, stop a stressful situation, or gain a reward or a favor. In this circumstance, the confessor knows that he or she is innocent, but they feel that there are benefits to confession that outweigh the potentially damaging long-term consequences. There are certain aspects of police interrogation that can be the catalyst for this kind of false confession, and things like food, or the chance to rest, or the chance to make a phone call, can contribute to someone's decision to confess. We've all seen these situations play out in movies and documentaries, like when 16-year-old Brendan Dassey confessed to the assault and murder of Teresa Halbach in the docuseries Making a Murderer after he was led to believe that he could go back to school, as long as he said what the police wanted to hear. This form of coerced compliance was exemplified by the now famous 1989 Central Park jogger case in which five New York City teens confessed to the violent assault of Trisha Maley after being subjected to hours of interrogation. The boys later said that they gave confessions because they believed they would be allowed to go home if they did so. All five were incarcerated until they were proven innocent in 2002, when another man confessed to having committed the attack completely alone. This new confession was confirmed using DNA evidence, and it became clear that the initial statements of the five boys were all false. Some of the tactics used in police interrogation are inherently coercive and can increase the rates of false confessions. Among the most intense methods, many of which are no longer used, are the tools of third-degree interrogation, physical violence or the threat of physical violence, prolonged confinement, extended isolation, the withholding of food or sleep, mental torment, and severe sensory discomfort. Modern interrogation uses these extreme methods only in desperate situations, like during the questioning of a suspected terrorist. Since the 1960s, interrogators have leaned instead on psychological methods of questioning suspects. These techniques are less physical in nature, and they rely instead on deception and control. Saul Kasten describes the general purpose of interrogation as an attempt to override a suspect's resistance in order to get to the truth in the course of a criminal investigation. To this end, law enforcement officials will often use a combination of positive and negative incentives to encourage a person to reveal more than they may want to reveal about themselves or their knowledge of the crime. One of the most common tactics used in this process is the read technique. In this technique, interrogators are told to keep the suspect isolated in a small room to increase his or her anxiety at the beginning of the questioning, and once the interrogation begins, the investigator uses a nine-step method to get the desired response, a confession. 
The read technique requires the interrogator to confront the suspect with an accusation of guilt and then to give him or her no chance to deny this accusation. Real or manufactured evidence can be used to support this accusation. Throughout the process, however, the questioner simultaneously offers potential moral justifications for the crime and minimizes the crime's seriousness through normalization or sympathy. This combination is incredibly persuasive and it makes the suspect believe that a confession may be the most beneficial or expedient way to get out of the interview. Once he or she is convinced to admit to being guilty, the investigator tries to get a detailed narrative confession. The read technique is highly popular among law enforcement interrogators. In 1996, researcher Richard Leo conducted an observational study of 182 interrogations from three different California police departments and found that detectives used an average of 5.6 separate tactics per interrogation and that the read-style methods were among the most common. Saul Kasson surveyed police investigators and found similar results. When asked to rank the interrogation tactics that they use the most frequently, police investigators listed in order 1. Physical isolation of the suspect, often in a small room. 2. Identification of discrepancies in the suspect's account. 3. An effort to establish a trusting rapport with the suspect. 4. Assertion and disclosure of evidence of the suspect's guilt. And five, an appeal to the suspect's self-interest. There are some specific risk factors that can increase false confession rates. Authority figures and social surroundings can be extremely powerful in changing the choices that people make and can even persuade people to make decisions that are not in their own best interest or that of others. Stanley Milgram's famous 1964 study with the fake electric shocks is a great example of this. And according to Casson, there are three specific features of traditional interrogation methods that may play more heavily on innocent people's tendency to falsely confess during an interrogation. The first is the length of the interview. The second is the presentation of false evidence that implicates the suspect. And the third is the minimization of the crime by the interrogator. Let's break these down. The duration of an interrogation has been found to be a very potent risk factor. In 2007, Kasson conducted a survey of North American police interrogators, and he found that the average length of a suspect interview is 1.6 hours, while the longest interviews are an average of 4.2 hours. A 2006 study by Barry Feld concluded that interrogations lasting over six hours are coercive, and the fatigue and mental strain caused by abnormally extended questioning, not to mention the deprivation of food and rest, are often linked to the false confessions that are induced by police tactics. A 2004 review of 125 verified false confessions by Richard Leo and Stephen Dreisen found that 34% of the interrogations lasted between 6 and 12 hours, and 39% lasted 12 to 24 hours, with an average duration of 16.3 hours, 2.7 times longer than the length considered coercive by Feld. The presentation of false evidence has repeatedly been found to increase the rates of false confessions. In 
Like I said, in the United States, investigators are legally permitted to lie about evidence during the course of an interrogation. For this reason, it's not unusual for police officers in the U.S. to tell a suspect that they have some piece of incontrovertible evidence, physical or intangible, that proves a suspect's guilt. This could be a blood sample or a fingerprint or even a failed polygraph or an eyewitness statement. I use these two in my thesis. Legal scholars have hotly debated the use of this kind of deceit, but reviews and studies have clearly shown that the false evidence ploy can be highly dangerous in the context of false confessions. There are a great number of proven wrongful convictions in which false evidence was used to elicit a false confession. Studies designed to generate false confessions show that introducing false evidence can induce innocent participants to wrongfully admit to breaking the rules. Saul Kasson and Catherine Kiekel developed the first such study in 1996. They designed a paradigm in which college students typing on a keyboard were falsely accused of causing the computer to crash by hitting a button they had been told not to touch. All of the accused students were absolutely innocent, but each was asked by a researcher to sign a confession acknowledging their guilt. During some of the questioning sessions, a confederate, someone who worked in the lab, stated that she had actually seen the participant press the prohibited key. This simple piece of fictitious evidence practically doubled the number of participants who signed the confession statement, bumping the rate from 48% to 92 a follow-up question even revealed that some of these students had internalized their own guilt and they actually believed that they had pressed the key despite the fact that they were definitely innocent. Other studies have found the same effect about false evidence, even when participants are told that a confession will result in financial consequences or a lengthier experiment, and this effect is particularly strong for children and adolescents who are more suggestible and often more compliant than adults. Finally, we come to minimization. Minimization involves portraying a crime as being less severe than it is, and making it seem like a confession is a practical and beneficial way to end the interrogation. This is commonly done through a process called theme development, in which the interrogators make the suspect's actions during the crime seem justified, or give excuses for why he or she may have performed those actions, or even imply that the crime was provoked or accidental or drug-induced or in some other way caused by external forces. By appearing to diminish the guilt of the suspect, interrogators are able to convince them that a confession may lead to leniency during the interrogation and the trial without ever making such explicit promises, which would actually be illegal. In 2005, a study led by Melissa Russano found that minimization tactics nearly doubled the rate of true confessions from 46% to 81% and tripled the rate of false confessions from 6% to 18%. Clearly, minimization is a way for law enforcement to coercively get suspects to confess without actually promising them anything. Through this loophole, false confession rates are driven up without breaching the laws around interrogation methods.
There are a number of theories that try to explain why innocent people admit to crimes they did not commit. It may be that the very fact of innocence puts people at risk. Perhaps people who are falsely accused have faith that the truth will out, justice will prevail, and their innocence will be revealed in the course of a thorough investigation and a fair trial. With this belief in mind, they cooperate with police officials, they waive their right to an attorney, and they freely provide information, never realizing that all the while, investigators are considering them perpetrators, not innocent witnesses. Criminals, on the other hand, adjust the amount of information that they reveal, instead of cooperating fully. This obliging nature of innocent suspects has powerful implications for police interrogations. For example, investigators may bluff about evidence instead of presenting a bold-faced lie about information. You might think that this fabrication would induce only a guilty suspect to cooperate, and that a similar effect would not be found among innocent people who have no reason to be worried about evidence against them. After all, to those who are innocent, all evidence should presumably show that they are not in the wrong, and therefore bring an end to the interrogation. But this seemingly small bluff is a danger to innocent people. The computer crash simulation paradigm that I mentioned earlier was modified to test the effects of bluffing on innocent participants who are falsely accused. In this version, all the participants were innocent, but each was urged to sign a confession. One condition included a false eyewitness accusation in which the participants were told that someone had seen them touch the forbidden key and cause the computer to crash. And this single piece of false evidence increased the false confession rate from 27% to 79%. In another condition, the researchers told the participants that the computer had recorded their keystrokes, but that the data couldn't be read until a lab tech returned on the following day. In this condition, the false confession rate also increased significantly, jumping up to 87%. These results show that even for an innocent person, the potential threat of future proof encourages an admission of guilt. Stress can also have a major effect on confession rates. The ability to make decisions requires a number of cognitive resources, and when these resources are depleted during an interrogation, it can lead to poor choices on the part of a suspect. People being interrogated have to maintain so many mental faculties in order to navigate the questioning, and this can be difficult even for innocent people. They have to keep their focus on avoiding incrimination while simultaneously being wary of pitfalls like excessive compliance or trying to please the interrogator. They have to be constantly aware of all the possible consequences of what they're saying and doing, which can be particularly hard during longer interrogations. They have to attend to incoming information, retrieve information from their long-term memory, and use their working memory to respond to the questions as they come. All of this is exhausting, and it's extra hard if you're tired. All of this is made even more complicated by the effect that a confession has in court. The power of a confession in the criminal justice system is well documented. Several studies have found that law enforcement officers often close investigations immediately after a confession instead of pursuing other leads or chasing down any other evidence. 
Likewise, prosecutors sometimes stubbornly maintain their faith in a person's guilt when they confess, even when DNA evidence has incontrovertibly proven that that person is innocent. Several experiments done with mock juries have shown that confessions are possibly the single most persuasive piece of evidence presented in court. Jurors are often unwilling to ignore confessional statements, even when they consider them to be coerced. Furthermore, mock jurors may be strongly influenced by a confession, even when that confession was clearly made in response to an explicit promise of leniency by an interrogator, which again, is illegal in a true investigation. Another study showed that mock jurors were swayed by a confession that was just described by an accomplice or a jailhouse informant, even when they were told that this person potentially benefited from giving that testimony. Reviews of actual case files are equally disturbing. Archival analysis shows that when defendants whose confessions have been proven to be false plead not guilty, jurors still convict them at rates ranging from 73% to as high as 81%. Clearly, the issue of false confessions is one that deserves attention and concern. We can't lock innocent people away knowingly, and the use of the interrogation methods currently being practiced is far too dangerous to ignore. At the very least, we need to avoid leaning on false evidence and work harder to find the truth without relying on confessions, because obviously they can't be counted on. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Maya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. If you like what we do, please tell people about us any way you can. Follow us on social media at Psychologia Podcast, or visit our website for links to source materials and to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.